to the Smells Like Middle-Aged Spirit Podcast. What smells so bad? It's strong, but you'll get used to it. Now here's your hosts, Nick Stevenson yeah, and buddy. Chris Clark. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it is that time again. Whatever time of day it is, wherever you may be listening in the world. Welcome to episode 17 of the Smells Like Middle-Aged Spirit podcast. My name's Nick Stevenson, and we are on day 5,781 of self-quarantine and social distancing. (laughs) That's what it feels like. My man Christopher Clark is still on the phone. What's going on, fella? What's up, my dude? How you been? You hanging in there? Oh, my God. I'm I'm doing my damn best. (laughs) Tell you what, the one thing that's bothering me about this whole fucking mess is my fucking hair. Dude, I look like a hobo. <laughs> I, I haven't had to trim my own beard in five years, and right. I know for a fact that I'm butchering it up every step of the way. And if <sighs> I was to put some holy clothes on, you would think I'd be a Chris, freaking street hobo. Chris, just come on home and shave the head, baby. Come on home. Let's do it. <laughs> I've, been, I've been trying, man, but hey, Haley's holding out. Well, we have a very special episode and a very special guest joining us, um, Courtney French is on the line with us as well. How are you doing, Courtney? Hi, I'm doing great. I'm surviving this quarantine as well. Also, yeah, <laughs> I hear you. The kid's driving you nuts yet? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, it's, Absolutely. it's funny because... She tell me Autumn doesn't talk, but she talks. Actually, I don't even know if I've heard Autumn's voice. I imagine... Oh, no, <laughs> 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 it's It's been a weird time. It's been very strange. The reason you're joining us today is I've been wanting to have an episode where we address the topic of addiction. You can ask Chris since the time that we decided to start this thing. Addiction is something we see a lot of people deal with. Also, mental health, depression is something that people are probably less willing to talk about than the addiction part themselves. But from the aspect of me and Chris, one of the reasons we wanted to do it is because I gave you full disclosure, we are two people who in the past had been fairly skeptical of the idea of addiction being a quote-unquote disease. That's because that wasn't our experience. I I told you before, I've softened on that a little bit just because of the more people that I've known who've dealt with this, with addiction and things of that nature. So really the point of doing this episode was to kind of educate us on the subject. And we wanted to talk to somebody who's been through some of the things that we'd seen other people go through, who's fought with addiction, who's fought with mental well-being and the struggle that both of those intertwine. I noticed you had posted something on Facebook several months back about how you were coming out and letting people know, hey, I'm dealing with some mental health issues, but I'm taking care of it. I'm I'm taking care of me. And so I reached out to you to commend you because that's that's something that's difficult to do. I think there's a stigma that's placed on mental health issues that come with it. There's a stigma that Somehow it makes you weak or you're different or you're weird. So what's the reason that you feel like it's important for you to speak out um, about your experience? I, well, I think it's just important because, you know, on the outside, I, I look like a perfectly well put together person. But that along with everybody else in the world, we all have stories behind our out, outer look that are much deeper. And we don't know what's going on behind closed doors with their own mental health. And I think that's important for people to know that everybody deals with some type of mental health issue at some point in your life, whether it's seasonal depression, whether it's just getting over, you know, a breakup or losing someone in your family or close friends. 
you deal with some type of mental issue. And some are more extreme than others. And some sometimes when you have something going on in your life, you're too scared to admit that it's messing up your daily routine. It's important that everybody feels like they can reach out without being shamed for it. I agree with you 100%, Courtney. Depression or some type of issue with mental well-being is something that everybody deals with at some point. And for many different reasons, sometimes there isn't a reason. I think depression is probably one of the least acknowledged illnesses that everybody has. And so I agree with you 100%. It is important to have this discussion. And I think you mentioned to me, if you get out there and you talk about it freely, it's going to take that stigma off of it for someone else possibly. And they'll realize, hey, it's it's not something that I need to keep to myself. It's okay to talk about it. So that's why this in, this episode was really important. As I said, when the addiction part comes in, I think there's so much ignorance. And I don't mean that necessarily in a negative way. There's just people who you don't know what you don't know. I know that was the case for me. So I knew I wanted to get somebody in here who could help tell their story and shed some light on it for people who may not fully understand what that experience is like. What I want to do is let you tell your story. I do have a few questions I want to ask you first leading into it. As we mentioned before, if I ask anything that you don't want to answer, you don't have to. It's all good. Let me start with asking you how old you are. I'm 30 years old. 30 years old. Okay. And where are you from? Originally, I'm from um, Alvin, Texas. Straight out I of Alvin. I lived there until I was 13, and then I moved up to Katy, Texas. To Katy when you're 13. Can we call Alvin the Florida of Texas? Can we do that? I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Is that fair? It's, it's very unique there. <laughs> it's like Florida with no water. We'll we'll call it that. <laughs> Shout out to Alvin. <laughs> Stay kind. We we love you guys. <laughs> All right. So you grew, grew up in Alvin. Thirteen. You moved to Katy. Shout out Tigers. We love you guys too. Maid Creek Rams. Oh, you're Maid Creek. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I shout out to the Maid Creek Rams as well. We love you guys too. <laughs> How many siblings do you have? I have four brothers and two sisters. I'm the youngest out of all of them. The baby. All righty. So what's it like growing up the youngest of seven? How would you describe your childhood growing up? So my, my childhood, yes, I do come from a very large family, but the dynamics of the family, we, we all didn't live together. We were a split up family, mm-hmm. blended, I guess you could call it. Right. So growing up, I saw my siblings here and there. My oldest sister she was always in my childhood. Uh, she she took care of me a lot mm-hmm. when my parents were working. My oldest brother was there as well. Him and I, we've, we've always had a very strange relationship, not very close at all. Uh, I think it was the age difference mostly. Steve. Growing up, it was kind of just me playing by myself unless my other sister would come to visit. And then we, would, we were like best friends. So you kind of learned how to be a loner, keep yourself busy? For the most part. Okay. Yeah, I can I can agree to that. All right. Uh, what was your relationship like with your parents? As a child, my relationship was really good. Um, I have no real bad memories that I can recall. When I think about my childhood, it's, to me, it's very happy. Um, we didn't have a lot of money, but at that point in my life, I was oblivious to it. They never let it show. So a lot of our activities and things we did, it was fun. It was involved. We we would do things together as a family unit. Anytime there were struggles, like if, you know, the gas was cut off and we didn't have hot water or anything like that, it they always seemed to make it a game for us. It, was, it wasn't a negative thing. It would be turned into some type of game to make the situation better. That's awesome. 
You got to roll with the punches. Uh, you mentioned to me when I was interviewing you before this that uh, you were a bit of a tomboy growing up. What type of things would you get into? Oh, yeah. I would make mud pies. I was always outside barefoot. Never wore shoes outside. We lived out in the country. So right. we would play in the mud or on the, what is it, propane tank <laughs> in our backyard. <laughs> That's safe. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, climbing trees. Just all those. Never really up. liked to wear dresses. Nothing's up. Wrestling. Getting in fights. Oh, yeah. Spitting. All that stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you kind of touched on it. My next question, I was going to ask you what were some of the struggles that you faced in childhood. Um, you mentioned some of the financial things, but um, how were the relationships in in the home other than you know outside of your siblings um well there was i mean my parents they weren't really that great together Mm -hmm. my father he was an excellent father but he was not a good husband he liked to wander a lot (laughs) (laughs) okay yeah he was a one and so that that kind of took a toll and by the time i was nine my parents decided to get a divorce Okay, so that was so, probably pretty tough on you. It was. Um, it was very tough. I yeah. was confused. When your parents split up, who did you live with? I chose to live with my dad. Okay. So would you say at the time you were closer to your father? Um, yeah, I think I was. And I think it was the fact that it was just going to be him and me together. And I, I liked that much better. You had a really good relationship with him. And I want to get into that. I mean, what types of things would you guys do together? What was it about him, the way he made you feel, that just made you feel safe and comfortable being there? He was he was like my big teddy bear. Um, there, We always did everything together. And I think because he was a single parent, that I, I was always next to him. Um, he liked old cars. He liked working on cars. And so that was one of the biggest memories I have of him is that anytime we would see a really old car, he would just talk about it nonstop. Yeah. Um, and then you know, he was goofy, dorky, always said the funniest dad type thing. Right. And then he put me first. <laughs> How old are you? You said you were nine when they split up and you go live with your dad. Are you still in Alvin at that time? No, at that time it was fifth grade. He was working as a, um, in the maintenance department at Friendswood ISD. I, he transferred me to Friendswood ISD at that time. You want to shout out the schools there or you really don't care? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't there long enough. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. <laughs> That's what I, I, every time I shout out my schools, it's like 17 different schools. So I hear you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so obviously your parents going through a divorce. That's, that's tough. What is the earliest time that you can remember that you felt depressed? Earliest time? I want to say it was when I moved out of Alvin ISD school to Swinswood because I pretty much lost all the friends that I had made in Alvin mm-hmm. and I had a really close group. I mean, this is elementary. Those were my best friends yeah. and having to go to a new school, a new school district. That was a completely different atmosphere. And especially if you know the dynamics of Alvin versus Swinswood, you know how completely different they are. Oh yeah. Home. Yeah, for sure. You're talking about a different socioeconomic group at that point. Yes, yes. I think that had my first bout of depression, but I didn't see it as that. And I didn't, obviously, at that age, I didn't know any any better. Right. But that's the earliest you can remember feeling sad. Like, not only are your parents splitting up, but now you're also having to change schools. It's it's difficult. It's something kids of divorce 
that they all go through. So that's 100% understandable. So how long were you living with your father in Friendswood? We still lived in Alvin. We just, I oh, okay. went to school in Friendswood. So from 2001 to 2003, you went to Friendswood ISD. But you lived in Alvin. Yeah. Okay. So what were the circumstances that led you moving to Katy? It was, I, I would go and visit my mom, you know, how the visitation were, and I would see her. And there was a lot of, I don't want to say false promises, but there was a lot more that she was able to give me that I wanted at that age mm-hmm. that my father wasn't able to provide. There were times my father wouldn't eat so that I would eat. Right. And so she was a lot, a little more financially stable and able to provide things that a normal 13 year old would want. Was it a mutual decision between your parents or did you have to say, Hey dad, I want to move, live with mom. How did that go? It was definitely not mutual. My father did not want me to move. He was, he was very heartbroken Mm -hmm. Um, actually to the point where we didn't talk for several months after I did move out to Katie. Once you're in Katie and you're living there, how was the process of settling in, making friends and all of that? How did, how did that go for you? It went well. I don't, uh, as I recall, I don't remember having any difficulty really making friends. Um, I was kind of used to being the new girl at that point. Right. And coming in in the middle of the school year versus at the beginning, it's it's easier to make friends. And I don't know why that is, but it's just easier to make friends. So I instantly got this group of friends. Things were going great. I was able to dress how I wanted (laughs) <laughs> all of that I was able to go places or right just, it was a, it was kind of more like freedom in a way you're there for several months before a devastating event in your life takes place um, would you like to go into yeah. that and tell us what that is yeah so 10 months after I moved to Katie um, my father was in a motorcycle accident and he died on scene it was October 1st 2003 and it completely changed everything. The weekend before his accident, him and I actually spoke on the phone. And we had made amends with each other. Mm-hmm. So we had plans to see each other that following weekend. But unfortunately, that Wednesday before the weekend, he was killed. So you had mentioned earlier with several months that you guys didn't talk to each other. So when you made amends the weekend before he passed, was that the first time y'all had spoken to each other? We had spoken a few times um, during the summer, but it, it wasn't, there was still animosity. There was still a lot of tension. Yeah. He bought the motorcycle after I moved out. Oh, okay. So there was a lot of, a lot of guilt. He was upset with you that you would move to Katie. Were you upset with him for being upset with you? I can't really remember if I was upset or if. I just didn't understand why he was so upset or if I even cared at that time. Gotcha. It was more so me, me being selfish and wanting, wanting the things that most kids my age were able to have. And and my mom at the time was able to provide that lifestyle. So I think it was very selfish, but also being that age, most children at that age are pretty selfish. Yeah, absolutely. You just mentioned it. You get the news that he passes and that's where guilt starts setting in. Go into that a little bit further. So after after he passed, um, I actually, the day he passed, I, I was numb. And in months leading after his death, I was numb. I, I even went to school the next day. It kind of didn't hit me. And I pushed it off and just 
submerged it. Right. And then I never really talked about it, even though I had all of these internal thoughts of, you know, what if I wouldn't have moved out? What if I talked to him more? Would things be different? Would it be about the motorcycle? Just certain aspects like that. Yeah. Was anyone externally other than yourself, or did you have siblings or family members who were also giving you grief about the fact that you left? And Or was this only coming no, from you? this was only coming from me. Okay. Everybody was in major grief and yeah they i think a lot of them were really worried about me because i wasn't showing any signs of grief right that is scary because you don't know what's brewing inside of that person at that point Mm -hmm. okay he passes in 2003 and i guess it would be fair to say you said you weren't showing it externally do you feel like inside your depression was definitely ramping up to the next level oh absolutely and it, it, to me, looking back on it now, it wasn't the typical sadness that I was feeling. A lot of it was anger. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it was anger towards myself. Right. Did you talk to anybody about it? Uh, I talked. I had a couple of friends that I would talk to here and there about it. Uh, my mom did try to put me in therapy at the time. Mm-hmm. But it none, none of that really helped or I wouldn't really talk about it to where I needed to. Because it, in a way... I think what it was, was that I had these feelings, but I was also telling myself that I was okay, that I was fine. Yeah, nobody wants to admit and to I themselves did, that, that they're weak, at least in their mind. No, absolutely. Nobody wants to admit and that. And whenever you have this feeling, and some, I'll mention this later on, but when you're going through something to where you're, you have physical things happening to you, you know, when your heart races really fast or you're constantly overthinking things Mm -hmm. you also have your mind telling you that you're fine and there is nothing wrong with you and it's an eternal battle inside your brain and it's a vicious vicious cycle yeah you mentioned to me that the year that your father died was also the first time that you were introduced to drugs how soon after he passed did that happen that was within um within six months after his passing that me and a friend had access to cocaine and we decided to do it. And I was very, very nervous, very scared. Um, mind you, I hadn't done anything else beforehand. I hadn't even, I'd smoked cigarettes, but yeah. besides that, I had not touched anything. So I was very scared, very nervous, but a part of me just really wanted to feel something different. Mm-hmm. You know, I tried it and it was just, a different feeling that I quickly fell in love with. So you went from doing nothing to cocaine. That's like zero to a hundred real quick. Yeah. So <laughs> Yeah. So I, I skipped, I skipped go. There was no gateway. You just went, no. <laughs> you jumped the gate. So how you're, how old are you at this time? The first time you tried cocaine? I was 14. Yeah. That's my daughter. That's my daughter's age right yeah. now. <laughs> and that's terrifying because you know as a mother myself i look back on that and i'm just like oh my goodness yeah like how does a 14 year old even have access get to access like to that? cocaine and what type of yes. scumbag would give a 14 year old exactly a drug like that and they're out there and that's the that's another issue is they're out there and they have yeah. no care in the world yeah gary stuff the first time you try it though you like it yeah i did I didn't, I didn't start doing it. It wasn't like I tried it that one time and then it was like, oh my gosh, I have to do it nonstop. It wasn't like that. It was 
I tried it. I liked it. And then the next time it became available or I was offered it, I didn't hesitate. It was probably a no-brainer at that point. Like, once you'd taken that leap of faith and nothing bad happened, you know, you're like, okay, I can do this. What percentage of your peers would you say were also using cocaine? None that I, I knew of. Um, it was the, the girl I was friends with at the time. She was friends with much older people than me. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, the group of friends I had, they had no idea. Okay. They were, yeah, they didn't even smoke cigarettes. So, so you were kind of re- being a rebel on the low at that point. Wanting to feel something different, was that in relation to your depression, the guilt of your father's passing, just wanting to kind of escape from that? I want to say that's exactly what I was trying to escape from, kind of just escape from my own mind, my own thoughts. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be a different person. Right. How did you feel when you were high on cocaine? Did you feel like a different person? I did. I, I had more confidence. I liked myself better. I was able to talk more. I mean, before that, holding a conversation, I was shy. It was hard for me to talk to people. It was hard for me to have the courage to talk to people. And then, you know, once the monster was introduced to my life, it made me the person I wanted to be or that I thought I wanted to be. Right. What type of habit does a 14-year-old develop? How often were you using it, would you say, early? And this was, what, eighth grade? Yes, this was the end of eighth grade. I wasn't using often. I want to say it was one time here and there over the next five or six months. Because obviously at that age, the access to it is is not always there. Um, Unless you know somebody. And at that age, I barely knew anybody. Right. So tell me what your relationship with your mom is like after your father passes. And she have any inkling? That relationship, there wasn't a relationship. She saw me starting to act out and rebel with certain things, like in school. Mm-hmm. And she tried very hard to keep me in line. But I think a lot of it was she also didn't want to push too hard because of what I was going through. Um, Makes sense. So I, I kind of played that on her, that whole grief part, to get away with things. And it just, we didn't have a relationship. Do you think she was aware that you were doing that, but just felt bad enough? No, that, not at all. No. She just felt bad for you and didn't want to be too hard on you. Yeah, so she, I think that was the biggest thing. Yeah. So she clearly has no idea of what's happening that you're 14 years old. No, and using I, I, I don't think the parent who is a parent of, you know, 13 to 15 year old even process the thought of them doing some type of drug. Yeah. I don't think that crosses their mind, especially the type of drug I was doing. Yeah, I agree with you. That's kind of unfathomable. I think once you become a parent, you start to realize how easy it is to maybe miss some things, too. So I can understand that. Okay, going into high school, you're kind of a brand new version of Courtney. Are you are you still a tomboy at this point? Um, At this point, I had cut all my hair off. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a, a like pixie cut. Okay. My hair was jet black. I was a completely different Courtney. I even changed my name and started going by Lizzie. My middle name, Elizabeth. Okay. So you got the jet black hair. You going for the goth look? Are we punk? What are we doing in high school? Was, trying to figure I, out what table you were sitting at. So I was the gothic punk kid. Um, before I chopped all my hair off, you know, I was rocking the tie, looking like Avril Lavigne. Yeah. So I was starting to go down that little path of the punk scene. Okay. But that kind of summer before ninth grade, I decided to just go all out and I went for it. 
Yeah. So you would have been sitting at Chris Clark's table. Chris, Chris. <laughs> Chris, you would have been sitting at your table. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So you're going to, you're at Maid Creek? Yes. High school? Going into Maid Creek High School. All righty. So you're not hanging with the cheerleaders and the jocks. You're, you're one of the, you're one of the gothic punk kids. Okay. How does the drug use accelerate once you start getting older? Throughout high school, um, ninth grade was when I, I smoked weed for the very first time, marijuana for the first time. Um, okay. So I was getting more comfortable with pretty much at that point, if anything was offered to me, I probably would have tried it, no question asked. Right. But, um, but no, I, nothing was offered to me more than, you know, cocaine, marijuana, drinking. So when would you do so this? That, were you guys having parties on the weekends? Like, how does how do fourteen and fifteen year olds get away long enough to to get into this kind of stuff? So the type the type of friends I had made their their home life was not very disciplined. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like they were able to do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. They had no structure, and so I would always find ways to go to their house because, unlike their lifestyle or um, home life, my mom was strict. Right. She she tried very hard to make sure that I wasn't getting into certain things, but I was sneaky. Yeah. If you want to do something bad enough, you'll find a way to do it. That's, yes. Yeah. And I and I found ways. Um, I would even have my friend act as a parent and talk to my mom on the phone just to agree for me to go over there. Oh wow! So I'm writing this down. Ways by the way, because I have teenagers now, so I'm writing all this down. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Got to school me to some pointers. Okay. So you're drinking, you're partying, smoking weed, doing cocaine. How important is school to you at this point? School fell down to my feet. It was not even on my radar. Um, It took me three times to pass ninth grade. I'll just say that. And you can get an idea of how important school was to me. Three Um, times. I want to Google that and see if it's a record. We'll find out later. (laughs) (laughs) They were finally at the point to where they were like, Move to the next grade, please. Just go. <laughs> I give them props so. for allowing you to go to ninth grade three times. I mean, they didn't give up on you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, wow. I was always in detention, um, always had lunch detention from skipping class. I was always in in-school suspension. It actually got to the point to where the principal just stopped giving me after-school detentions because I wasn't showing up. And wow. a lot of the times I would spend my sitting in the principal's office just so I wouldn't be roaming the halls or going out behind the school to smoke. I feel like they, they kind of gave up on me a little bit as mm-hmm. far as school goes. How does this affecting your relationship with mom? Like you're getting in trouble at school. What's, what's mom going through at home aside from, cause you moved in with her in 2003 and then she also was taking care of your other siblings, correct? Yeah. Well, the only other, she was helping my other, my older siblings out here and there. And then, second oldest sister was living there because she was in high school as well. She, um, she was a senior when I was a freshman, but her and I went to two different high schools. And is your mom in a relationship at this time? Yes. She remarried. Um, she's still married to my, he's my stepdad, but I call him dad now. Um, they're still together and married. So he, he was there (laughs) for all of the bad times. It, It took a toll on their relationship with me acting out because I wasn't listening. I wasn't abiding by their rules. Yeah. I was always grounded. Yeah, I think I wanted to bring that up because I don't want it to seem like your mom was just ignoring you or 
not caring about what you were doing. She had some other stuff going on. Oh yeah, being a parent she, is hard. She worked a full time time job. She um, had all my other siblings to take care of. You know their own little life issues that arise. And yeah. as as an adult, you always need your parents here and there, mm-hmm. no matter what. Yeah, they always help out whenever they can. Oh hell yeah. So she was dealing with that, and then on top of that, she was trying to get grab the reins for me because mm-hmm. I was just going off the rocker with school, rebelling, and I don't think she really knew how to go about it. People can sit on the outside and judge and see a kid who's – I've been guilty of it. I'll see kids who act, are acting the way you acted in high school and be like, oh, that's their parents' fault. Their parents aren't doing what they're supposed to do. People have said that when my son has gotten in trouble at school. People have said that about me and my wife. <laughs> they've said that we're not being good parents because of at the end of the day, like every child makes choices. Like as a parent, you try to give them as much as you can to help them make the right choices. But at the end of the day, they're going to make their own choices. They're individuals. It's, it's not always necessarily a reflection of how involved that they are as a parent. So I just wanted to clear that up. I didn't want it to make it seem like your mom was just not giving a flip about what you were doing. You know, she was trying she was always on my butt, always grounding me. Yeah. Very strict. And I think the you know, the tighter she tried to keep me grounded, the more I wanted to push against that. Yeah. Um, and I found ways to do it without her knowing or with her thinking that I was doing the right thing. That, that's probably a more typical story than we would think. Three times in the ninth grade, um, did you graduate high school or did they let you go to 10th grade how, how, how did it go after ninth grade so I did I did go up to um 10th grade and at this point you know the my graduating class they were <laughs> they're gearing up for 12th grade so I decided to drop out of Maid Creek and I went to this charter school mm-hmm. um and it at the time it seemed like a really great idea I had another friend do it as well yeah and it was this this private charter school type thing and you do all your schoolwork like by yourself, turn it in. And I graduated. I, you know, I got my tapping down. I walked across the stage. I got a diploma. Mm-hmm. And, um, then years later I found out that they were not accredited and my diploma was fake. So That's I did enough to get my GED. <laughs> That's insane. So those charter yeah. schools, that's like the one, like the students who get pregnant, they drop out and go to stuff like that, right? Yeah. For the most yeah, part. The, I call yeah. it the digital school. Right. <laughs> I only, I'm not judging. I only know because I ended up graduating from one of those as well. I hope my diploma is not fake. As far as I know, it's real. I don't know. I haven't, uh, might want to do some research. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So during this time, Courtney, she's living her best life. She's partying, drinking and living it up. On the outside. What's Courtney feeling like on the inside? On the inside at that point, you know, it just depended on certain things. There were there were things that I would do that I didn't like about myself. There were times where I was just like, Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do better, I'm gonna do better. I can do better. But a weekend would come and then I would just put all of that to the side and focus on getting messed up. I don't think I liked myself very much. So when I was around friends or when we were you know, as you put it, living our best lives, I liked myself and that made me feel good. But when I was alone, I didn't like myself at all. Do you feel like your friends would have still been friends with you if you weren't drinking and doing drugs and all the stuff they were doing? 
I don't think a lot of them would have been. There were there were a couple of friends that I was really close with that they they got to see what I, I called back then like Courtney. They got to see Courtney. Yeah. And everyone else got Lizzie. It was like I had two personalities at the time. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Did you have any friends who weren't doing drugs and partying and trying to talk you off that ledge? Um, I had some friends who they would party, but they weren't as extreme. Yeah. Um, they kind of, they would go for the social aspect of it, but they wouldn't partake in any of the activities. But no, no one really tried to talk me down. Gotcha. But Lizzie was going full throttle. Yeah. All righty. All right. So at age 17, um, that's around the time you graduated with your class, correct? 17. I was still, I was still going to Maid Creek. Okay. So I want to ask you how this lifestyle that you were living, how it affected your relationships with the opposite sex. Do you have boyfriends? I know you said you were a tomboy. I guess I, I'm, the term used is I was an ugly duckling. <laughs> right. I was, I was more of one of the guys right. for a long time. So boyfriends and stuff like that, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't really part of my life at the time. Right. Gotcha. So at age 17, prepping for the show, you said you did get your first boyfriend at 17. And was your boyfriend doing drugs and stuff with you? Like, obviously. No, yeah. We we would do, we would smoke weed together and drink. Um, and then once, you know, after I graduated and everything, we ended up getting an apartment together. Mm-hmm. And so we, we did ecstasy. We did shrooms. Kind of just more like psychedelics at that point. Um, yeah. I did do coke every now and then, but it wasn't it wasn't kind of his style. So that kind of fell out of the entire equation at the time. So at this point, coke's not really a habit yet. Something that you've no. done frequently, but it's not a habit yet. You're you're still in that. I'm I'm living the life. Yes, I think it's just more of the anything I could get my hands on mm-hmm. that would alter my mind. Right. I was down to do. Gotcha. So I think at the time I was more addicted to just any type of change in my mental status. So tell me when things start going downhill for you. So things really, really started to spiral after that relationship had ended. Um, we were together for two, two years, maybe a little longer. And it was just kind of one of those relationships where we just grew apart. But I, I did not take it as well as he took it. I think I was still trying to hold on. So when we did end, I went back to some old friends and they introduced me to their new friends. And it was partying all the time mm-hmm. to the point to where I would crash at people's houses almost every night just to party. And you said you would slow down on cocaine. So once you get introduced to this new group of friends, uh, does that pick back up? It did. Um, some of the people I was introduced to, they were doing it daily. And um, just one of those things, like if I was around, they'd offer it to me and I would do it. And I somehow found a way to always be around them. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a question because I'm oblivious to the subject. How much would you say a daily cocaine habit would cost? Let's say on a oh. weekly basis. I have a weekly basis. I honestly, I can't, couldn't even tell you because I was never really having to pay for it at all. I'm sure we could find out. I'm sure there's somebody out there who could tell us. Oh, there, <laughs> there, there are people out there who know. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I'm just, like I said, I mean, 
I know that if it's good quality, it's not an inexpensive drug. So I would imagine, yeah, I would imagine a daily habit is, uh, I would imagine it's, you're, you're putting out some bread for sure. And I, and you have to remember, I'm, I'm living in Katy, Texas, Katy, Texas, Cinco Ranch, all of those areas, they're very well-established families in that area. Yes, it's very And they come from very wealthy homes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's why when you, when you, when you and I were prepping for this and you told me the first time you tried cocaine was at 14 years old in Katy, I was like, fucking Katy. Like, (laughs) I mean, that's definitely, that's a rich people drug. Let's, let's, let's keep it real. Like. You know, from you went from Alvin, where kids are smoking meth, to Katie, exactly, where they're uh, they're up there snorting that China. That's that's insane. Okay, you start hanging out with these guys, and you said it starts spiraling because they're on a daily habit. So does your habit become daily? It does. It becomes to the point, you know. And I must say, at this point in my life, I had a very good job. I was I was working at a title company, and it was a job that I could have gone up in the company and actually made it a career. Hmm. But so I'm, I'm partying every single day. I'm getting the feel of this new group of friends. They're completely different than any other kind of friends I had in the past. They're doing beach trips. They're having huge parties. I'm going to these big houses and it's every single day. And I would, it would get to the point to where I would miss work or I'd show up really late or I'd show up and still be partially drunk from the night before. So that, that led to me being fired. I lost my job. That's tough. So once again, on the outside, it's all glitz and glamour. Like, tell me about internally. I think this was kind of like the the start of it to where I was really getting bad with my habits. Mm-hmm. But I, I loved it. I didn't see any problem with it yet. Okay. The roommate I had at the time, she just, she couldn't handle the way I was partying so much, or I guess the lifestyle I had, the type of friends I had. So she moved out and I was left with the um, apartment by myself until I had another friend move up. When she moved up, we started, this was a childhood friend of mine. We kind of went crazy together right. and we were partying all the time. And, and I did have a trust fund from my dad's accident. So my bills were getting paid. So I technically didn't have to work. So, so that's why that money's every night. just going to your habit then. Yes. So that's that's going on. Again, at the point I still feel like life is amazing. I'm having the best time. People like me. People are wanting me to go places. They're wanting me to be there. Yeah. And I love it. It's great. Then my drinking and my cocaine use started to get really bad to where I would drink and then I would do coke to keep drinking and it would get to where I would black out. But I would still be around people and doing things. And then finding, so finding out afterward. Yes, finding out what I'd done, who I'd done, you know, those type of things. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, crap. So it would be fair to say that you were acting out sexually. Yes. Okay. And that was tied into depression, the addiction, but also something else happened to you that probably played a role in that as well, correct? Correct. And what was that? At, um, at 17, after a homecoming party, there was a lot of cocaine involved. Mm-hmm. But I was, I was raped by a friend's uncle. And it took a very long time for me to deal with that. 
and many, many years before I actually had the courage to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of guilt. I felt like it was maybe my fault because I indulged right. in drinking and cocaine before it happened. After that, you acting out by having multiple partners while you're partying, while you're drinking. Is that kind of a part of just trying to suppress what happened to you then? Um, partially, and I think what it is, is it was me being able to be in control. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've heard I've heard that before from others stating, you know, after after they've been taken advantage of, they find ways to have control over their own body again. And sometimes it's healthy and sometimes it's not. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, the way I was trying to cope with it, it was not exactly healthy. Yeah. I think that may be more common than people realize, though. My friend Keisha was on our show, but she talked about that, about how oftentimes people see a young woman who's promiscuous and they want to call her a hoe or whatever, but you don't know what may have happened to that young lady that led to that. And so I don't think that's really uncommon. I'm sure that also was part of the thing that would not make you feel great about yourself. You know, that's probably not a good feeling when you wake up and you're looking at all the collateral damage of everything you had done the night before. That's probably tough. No, it's really not a good feeling. And, um, it was starting to happen a lot. I would wake up and just be disgusted with myself. Mm-hmm. And the only way I knew how to feel better was to crack open a beer or open up a bottle or do a line and start the day. Yeah. Because that's the only that's the only way I knew how to cope with things at that time. So it was almost like a wash, rinse, repeat type of thing. Yeah. Like this vicious cycle. Yeah. That's that's tough. And, you know, that's, that's the definition of crazy is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. So did you start to get the feeling like that something needed to change? And what do you think was the reason you kept going through that cycle? What was keeping you from making that change? I think the reason I kept going through the cycle was because at the time, that's all I knew. And even though there were sober moments where I would look at my life, and I'd want to shake myself and be like, what are you doing? Like, get your get your freaking life together. You know, it's time yeah. to grow up. Put your big girl panties on and like, let's do this. Yeah. But I didn't know any other lifestyle at the time. And I liked, I liked that feeling of having friends and the funness. Like, I didn't want the party to end. Yeah. But I knew it was, it was coming to that point. Um, to the point where my family was starting to notice my drinking habits. And they were starting to become worried and concerned. Yeah. How often was your father on your mind when you're going through all this? Um, he was on my on my mind quite often. But any time I could find a way to bring him up in some type of conversation, mm-hmm. I would. Whether it was a memory or just talking about him. Um, I never talked about how I missed him yeah. or anything like that because I didn't want to bring the mood down. Right. But I would find ways to talk about him. When you were by yourself and not feeling great about yourself would you feel like maybe he would have been disappointed to know what you had kind of turned into i do there's there's been a lot of times well i don't (laughs) i don't want you to feel that now but well no i mean there (laughs) at the time did you there are times throughout my life where i look at it or in the moment and i'm just like my dad would be kicking my ass right now yeah i hear you was he a positive person 
Yeah, from what I can recall, he was. Yeah. One of the one of the things I wanted to know was he one of those people who would who would push you to be better if you feel like if he was around, if things would have got to the level that they did. That that's something I've, you know, battled with in the past. Um he yeah. did push me to try to do better. He you know, when I was living with him, he wanted me to get into sports and join clubs and Yeah. Yeah, I think he would have tried to push me to be a little better than where I was heading. <laughs> yeah. So talk to me about it. Tell me how things spiral. Where do you hit rock bottom? Where does everything change for you? So pretty much the last year before my rock bottom. Um, again, you know, it was at the point I was drinking every single day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was able to drink a 30-pack. I was drinking grown men under the table. Damn. And I, it was because I was doing cocaine, which would sober yeah. me up to where I was able to drink more. Right. Um, and... You know, during some of these blackouts, there were there was a lot of fighting. I would fight people, fist fights, get really physical. I also attempted to kill myself multiple times during those moments. Mm. So, those were looking back. I, I honestly, I don't even know how I survived because in each time my attempts would happen, for some reason my best friend at the time was there to save me at the last minute yeah that's those higher angels we talk about man of course you know my my best friend growing up she she knew my father um really well actually looked at him as a father Mm. so when those things would happen and we'd have like sober moments the next day she would always tell me like your dad's watching out for you your dad's watching out for you yeah and it was nice to hear, but I think I think it didn't help me because I didn't want to deal with those emotions yeah. of missing him. What was it about being alive that tortured you? It was it was because I wasn't I wasn't going anywhere. I didn't feel like I was ever going to amount to anything. Just kind of be like a disappointment constantly to people. Yeah, I felt disgusted with myself. I didn't like it. Yeah. Not being here felt like the lesser of two evils. I would be doing everybody a favor. Yeah. And I think that's a common feeling people have when they're in a depressive state. Kind of like if I didn't have all my bullshit around other people and I just offed myself, it'll be easier for them because they don't have to deal with it. Yeah. If anybody's listened to our show, I spoke pretty openly about having a similar experience where I didn't want to be alive anymore. And I think people on the outside looking in, look at you and they say, Oh, that's so selfish. And they're right. It is selfish. But when you're in it, you don't realize that you're being selfish. People don't understand you are tortured mentally. It is painful. Every breath you take to be alive. And you're not thinking about yourself. You're thinking that other people will be better off without you. I had a six-month-old baby when I went through that, and I had convinced myself that my six-month-old child would be better off without her father. I think about now what would have happened if I had gone through with what I intended to do, and Madeline today would be 14 years old, having grown up without her father, who had killed himself when she was six months old. What type of things would she be dealing with now? But you don't think about that when you're in the moment, and people don't understand that. Like something, there is a chemical imbalance in your brain at that point. You're not thinking like a normal person. 
So to sit on the outside and be like, oh, that person is so selfish. Yes, on the surface. And in reality, yes, it is a selfish thing because you're not thinking correctly. But you don't realize you're being selfish. You think you're doing everyone else a favor. And exactly. no, I, I agree with that your 100%. Mind, your mind is your biggest enemy at that point because it mm -hmm. convinces you that you are better off not in this world. Mm -hmm. You would make the world a better place if you weren't involved. For sure. So you said all this happened about a week before your rock bottom. I'm this sorry. This was happening a year. within the a year prior. Yeah, it all happened within the year. The attempt, attempted suicide, all four different occasions. My family, you know, they tried. My sister and my mother tried to have an intervention with me um, over drinking. Mind you, at this point, my cocaine use was completely secretive. Wow. I had friends that knew I did cocaine and they would supply me with it. Mm -hmm. But I had, even my best friend was unaware because she, she couldn't stand it. Right. She, and I didn't want to let her down. And that's the messed up part is I didn't want to let her down and let her know that I was using cocaine, but I didn't mind putting her through all the crap that came with it. Yeah. yeah. You didn't want to not let her down enough to actually quit. You just had yeah. to hide it. Yeah, exactly. I hear you. I had the intervention and I made a bunch of false promises saying that I was going to slow down on my partying. I was going to get a good job. You know, I was going to have my electricity turned back on and pay my bills. For a few weeks, I looked like I was actually doing that um, long enough, long enough to get away with it. To get them off your back. Yes. Okay. But what was really going on? What was really going on was I was still using, I was still going over to friends' houses and doing drugs, drinking, drinking never stopped. And at that time in my life, um, I was actually, I was in, I was involved in some, some illegal activities uh, that I don't want to go too much into detail about. You don't have to. But there was, there was a moment during that time where, you know, my apartment was raided by cops and that led to the eviction. I was evicted out of my apartment due to that. Do you want to mention what the cops were looking for when they raided your apartment? So when the cops raided the apartment, they were looking for large quantity of marijuana. And they didn't find it because that whatever was there at the apartment at the time, we had moved to another friend's house. So when they raided it, all they found was, I want to say it was like a gram of weed. Mm -hmm. And they flushed it down the toilet. Gotcha. So even they were not aware of cocaine use going on in that apartment. No. All right. So now that you're evicted, where do you go? Well, since uh, we were evicted, it was me and this other girl. We were roommates in the apartment and we were known as the tripod <laughs> because we did everything together. We were inseparable. Everybody knew us as that. Yeah. So we ended up getting a house in Katy. We got a, in some little neighborhood and we got a house together. And moved into that house. One of the girls I was friends with, she came from a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So her bills were always paid and she didn't have to work. So all of us, our bills are paid. We're not having to work. We just got a house. Life continued on. The party continued. And at this point, it's starting to warm up outside. Mm -hmm. Beach trips, things like that are getting planned. I'll start with January of 2011. Okay. January in 2011, um, I ended up going to jail for a traffic violation from years prior. I spent a day, a day and a night in county. Um, I was released at like 4 a.m. 
and none of my friends were answering because they had partied. So I had to call my mom to come pick me up from jail. And that was kind of when she started to notice that life, my life was not getting better. It was getting worse. Mm-hmm. We tried to have a heart to heart and I told her once again, you know, I'm going to clean my life up. Life's going to be good, mom. You don't have to worry about me. And she believed me for a little bit. So February, I think that February is when we moved into our house and we were having parties a lot. And then, um, March rolled around and it was March 22nd, 2011. We all took a beach trip and I, of course, went hard in the paint, got mm-hmm. trashed before noon, um, stayed drunk the entire time, staying on the beach. And I got into a fight with all of us, my friends, to the point to where we left, um, and we stopped at a Walmart on the way back from Galveston. And I was standing in my bikini on the side of the building crying. And I guess people became concerned. And they called the cops. And the cops came and checked me out. And they essentially, I don't even know how because I was completely drunk. But they let me go. So that night we get back to the house after the horrible beach trip. And I go to my room. And nobody's talking to me. So I ended up sneaking out, still in my bikini, snuck out, stand in my hair, and I rode around all night with some random guys doing drugs, doing a lot of cocaine until the sun came up on March 23rd. During that time, at some point of that night, I had made a, a cry to my sister through text message telling her that I was tired and I didn't want to do this anymore. I don't know exactly where that came from, but some some part of me, I guess, was begging for help subconsciously. So you don't actually remember sending that message? No, not at all. Wow. March 23rd, 2011, I got home and I had passed out in my bed for a little bit and woke up to my sister in my room telling me to get up that she was going to take me to treatment. And I was not willing to go, obviously, because I, I didn't even recall sending that text message. That was that wasn't me. That was someone else who sent it, according to my own mind. Um, yeah, yeah. One of the strange, one of the that. random guys you were hanging out with sent that message for you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> wow. Okay. I changed my mind at that point. I was so good with my my crazy life, but yeah. um, so she she wasn't able to get me up. Um, my best friend came into the room, and she started to taunt me. I was telling her, "Get the f out of my room. Mm-hmm. Leave me alone." She told me, she looked dead at me and said, make me. And I, from the stories, might because my family loves to joke about this now. It's um, very comical to them. I jumped up like a spider monkey out of bed, and I lunged for her. And we got into a full fist fight. Where she, she still has scars on her legs to this day from that fight. Wow. Um, <laughs> well, it came down to the point where she ended up choking me. Uh, had me on the ground and was choking me and choked me until I agreed to go to treatment. And I finally agreed. So me in my yellow <laughs> bikini was standing in my hair, got in my sister's car, and she drove me to uh, Memorial Hermann the Park uh-huh. off Gessner. Yeah. One of the best treatment centers here in Houston. It is amazing. If anybody, anybody needs any kind of help, look that place up because it does miracles. You said it's called The Park? The Park. P-A-R-C. Memorial Herman. Okay. That's good information to have because I'm hoping that somebody's going to listen to this and listen to your story. Whether 
it was your choice to come to that conclusion or not. Look, I was quote unquote voluntarily committed myself, but it wasn't really voluntarily, you know. It's the same, like, the situation you're talking about. You win. But... And, and they tell you, you know, one of those things they say is it's not for the people who want it, not for the people who need it, it's for the people who do it. Mm-hmm. And when I, when I went into treatment, I did not want to be there at all. My mindset was that I, I would do this and please my family and friends, mm-hmm. but my life was not going to change. So I spent I spent seven days in detox. Uh, oh. Normal normal detox stint is five. Seven days in detox. Seven days. What was that like? I slept a lot. I slept a, a lot. I felt really bad. It wasn't so much the physical aspect because that felt really awful. Coming off of coming off of anything sucks. Yeah. Because. Not only does your mind tell you you need it, but your body physically became dependent on it. Mm-hmm. So you go through night sweat, and it it kind of it kind of resembles the flu, a really bad flu, mm-hmm. or maybe the coronavirus. I don't know. Haven't had that, thank God. Yeah, knock on wood, but real it, quick. It's bad. So detoxes. Um, I go through that, and they take everything from you. And when I was dropped off, I had no clothes. Uh, they take your phone. They take everything and my mom I must mention my mom was out of state at the time she was unaware of all of this she was in Ohio um, Mm. because her father was passing away oh wow so at the time she had no idea what was going on because she was dealing with some major major things in her own life that were hard on her and I was in treatment for a total of 40 day inpatient treatment at some point while you're in there, are you thinking to yourself, you know what, I am going to change. I, I am going to make a change. Because you said initially you were just trying to please your family. Like, what clicked for you while you were in treatment? So what clicked was going to the meetings. When you're in inpatient treatment, they make the schedule so perfect that you barely have time to really get inside your own head. They keep you busy. And there's a lot of I guess um, meetings and counseling and activities you do to work through things, whether you want to or not. And it was funny because the first meeting I went to was a cocaine, cocaine anonymous meeting. And when I sat there, I felt like they were talking about my life mm-hmm. and um, I didn't like it. Yeah. I didn't like the fact that my life related to a cocaine anonymous meeting. Yeah. Um, the more meetings I went to, the more I related to the topic or to the people speaking. Yeah. And it kind of made me realize, hey, maybe you do have a problem. Yeah. I'm kind of fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's not a normal life. You're not <laughs> supposed to do that. Yeah. So by the time you get out, then like you're determined you're going to do the right thing. Did you have any relapses? Uh, no, okay. I didn't relapse. Um, what happened was I, I you know, I still had the house with my friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, they came to visit me and there was a lot of tough love involved. And they came to visit me one time and they told me that I was not allowed to come back to the house. I was not allowed to move back in with them. Damn. And it broke me. It, it hurt my heart because I felt like one of the biggest fears when you get clean and sober is that people aren't going to want to be your friend anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and some, 
some aspects that is the case. Yeah. And at the time, you know, my, my friends were telling me that, but it wasn't because they didn't want to be my friend anymore. It's because they weren't willing to change their lifestyle to keep me sober. Yeah. Hmm. So that's interesting. I left, I left treatment. So there's like almost treatment. There's almost a nobility to that, right? I mean, <laughs> it's kind of hard to like, is it noble or is it selfish? I, I don't know. I guess it's going to depend on the person. You can't really speak to their intent. But regardless, no. you weren't going back to the house. No, I wasn't. I ended up going to a halfway house for three weeks. Mm-hmm. I lived in a halfway house. And there, I think it. I think that honestly it benefited me because there you're able to leave. You're able to go places and do things. You do have a curfew. Um, you still get the meetings. And, you know, they hold you accountable because... When you get back, if you go somewhere, they obviously they drug test you, mm-hmm. a breathalyzer test, all of that. And they, they hold you accountable. So it's like you get a taste of life outside yeah. of rehab, but you're being held accountable for your actions. Right. You said you were there for three weeks? Yes. All right. Where do you go after that? Well, after that, I moved uh, back in with my mom. I moved in there. It was all about going to meetings, sobriety. My life, I was eating sleeping, breathing, meeting to the point to where I started to date someone who was also going to meeting. And anybody who's ever gone through treatment or done the 12-step program, they know that that is a big no-no in your first year of sobriety. Yeah. You are not to date. You should get a plant, stick to a plant, don't date. Yeah. But you were pretty heavily involved in it. What's your relationship with your mom at this point? It's good. Our relationship was starting to grow. There were not too many fights or arguments. She was very supportive. She's always been supportive with almost everything that I've done. That was a positive thing, of course. Yeah. Uh, Our relationship was good at that point, yes. That's good. So right now, at this point, you're addressing your addiction to cocaine. You're going to meetings. What's going on with your depression? Have you had a diagnosis at this point? Are you going through any type of therapy? I was actually diagnosed with a depressive disorder around the age 18, 17. I did a, I went to a mental institution for suicidal thoughts and I forgot to mention that it was, it was only for a couple weeks that I stayed there mm-hmm. and that's when I was diagnosed with the depressive disorder Okay. and I was put on out of van at the time. Were you taking de- antidepressants while doing cocaine through all those years? No, I had stopped. I had okay. stopped taking those shortly after I did the treatment at right. 17. So now that you've gone through yeah. rehab, though, and you are living with your mom, up to this point, you haven't begun treating your depression again? No. Okay. Obviously, it's probably very difficult to sober up off of something that you've been doing for as long as you had been, something that your body had become chemically dependent on. And your mind had become dependent on what's your. Yeah. So they normally say it takes about 90 days being clean and sober from substances mm-hmm. to have this fourth dimension feel. It's when your entire body is completely free of all of it. Yeah. So they recommend doing this. It's called 90 for 90. I actually did the 90 meetings for 90 days and it completely changed the way I thought the way I saw things. So maybe I wasn't technically focusing on my depression at the time, but the meetings and everything that I was doing 
was helping me. It yeah. was correcting my way of thinking, my thought process, all of that. So it was kind of like a two for a two for one. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what year is that that you come out of rehab? That was um, 2011. I do drink alcohol on occasion. Um, You've not done cocaine since March 23rd, 2011. Yes. I mean that's that's nothing to to shake a stick at. That's big. You said you had no relapses, so that's also big because that's I, I would venture to say that's probably yeah. not very common. To not have no, it's not. I unfortunately have lost a lot of a lot of people I know due to relapses. Yeah. So some of the things that have probably kept you grounded is you are a mother. I am. I I became a mother about a year after I got sober. I became pregnant the December following March, um, 2011, and I had my daughter September 12th. 2012. She she's um, she saved me. I think if it wasn't for her getting pregnant with her and having her, I I probably would have been one of the ones who relapsed and didn't make it. Did you have to deal with postpartum depression at all? I I had a little bit of it, but I think my situation that I had um, played a big part in it because I was completely alone after I had her. Mm-hmm. I had support of my mother and my um, stepdad. But as far as her father being in the picture, it was just me. Gotcha. When did you decide to go back to school? I um I decided to go back to school. I always wanted to go back to school. Um, I always thought about it, but I never actually took the initiative to do it or get started on it. So in 2015, I started really looking into it and researching it, and that um, following semester January 2016 I went back to school and I've been back to school ever since and I will tell you this if you wait too long to go back to school you have to do all of the remedial classes because Mm -hmm. none of it makes sense but that's a big step when you were not wanting to be on this earth anymore is because you felt like you weren't headed anywhere anyway let me tell you becoming a parent that immediately at least for most people it should that gives you a sense of purpose because now you have this person who you were solely responsible for. For, for. I know for me, even though I went through those moments where I thought my daughter would be better off without me, thankfully, also going and having some therapy and figuring out that, look, there's something chemically wrong here. It's not normal for you to feel this way. Uh, once I got my head right and I realized I wasn't going to worry about things that I couldn't control, my daughter became, like you said, everything your entire purpose. And I, I I can relate to that sentiment when you say if it were not for for Autumn, your daughter, that that you would not be here. You make the extra step of going to school to become a nurse, correct? Correct. Okay. Um when I when I started going back to school, that was definitely not my plan. Mm-hmm. I was just gonna try to get any kind of degree I could. I didn't think at the time going back to school, I didn't think that I was even on that level to achieve that type of education. Yeah. I didn't believe in myself. Um, but my grades have told me differently and my study habits and my determination has told me differently. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I made the decision to apply for the nursing program. It was just kind of like one of those moments like, wow, I can really do this. Like me, I'm going for this out of everything I've been through. Mm-hmm. I was accepted into one of the hardest program in the medical field 
besides, you know, going for your doctor's degree. Right, right, right. That's incredible. And, you know, we wish you all the best with that. How long do you think it's going to be before you're finished? Um, I have one year left. One year left. All right. Then you can put that R end at the end of your name. Yes, I can. Awesome. So obviously, recovering from addiction is a never-ending thing. For the rest of your life, you'll be a recovering addict. Of- there are things with that, you know, it, it doesn't technically have to be. It could be anything. Addiction ranges from, you know, drugs, explicit drugs, uh, alcohol, working out, eating food. Mm-hmm. It, anything you can think of. Anybody who has that, I call it an ism. Mm-hmm. Anybody who has that ism should become addicted to it. And then the mental health aspect of it is also a constant work in progress. Constant. It's always constant. Um, there's actually, you know, I was recently, recently I was diagnosed with general anxiety disorder. Um, I couldn't figure out what was going on. I was always overthinking things, making up these scenarios in my head to the point to where I was starting to self-sabotage everything around me and I couldn't understand why I was doing that I actually you know reached out made a therapy appointment and um, I was diagnosed with that and I'm currently in therapy I go once a week you know with this with the COVID-19 and the stay-at-home order it's been quite difficult Uh, video video therapy sessions are very different oh I can imagine I mean us doing this podcast the way we've been doing it, it's it's just not the same. At some point, we'll have to have you actually come on and be with us in studio. You'll see. Like, I understand that completely. And then when you're talking about something as important, the things you're talking to your therapist about, I imagine it it, all, it kind of dehumanizes it a little bit. It does. It's, it's kind of like you, you've lost your, your safe bubble. Right. But it, we're, ma- we're making it work. Everybody is kind of going crazy. Everything is upside down. Yeah. And everybody is trying to do the best they can with what we have. Absolutely. And I'm proud of you for just continuing to do it and to have the self-awareness to know that something's not right. That's the most important thing. Based on all of your experience with depression, with this anxiety disorder, with addiction, what do you say to the people who say, Addiction, that's not a disease. That's a choice. You chose to use cocaine. You chose to drink. Everything that happened to you started with a choice. What would you say to those people? There are people in this world who are able to do something and never do it again. Not even a second thought. And then there are people like me who do something, and whether it be the physical aspect of it or the emotional aspect of it, of how it makes them feel, they want to do it again because they're instantly wanting to feel that way again. Some people have it. Some people don't. Whether you believe it or not, it is real. And it's all over the world. And people suffer with this day in and day out. It starts with a choice like everything else in this world. But that choice gets taken away. And it takes more than anything saying, you know, oh, I'm just going to stop because I can stop. It doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. The end does not have a choice. You need help. Yeah. It's not to the same extent, but I'll tell you where I began to soften on that. It's because one day I was having a conversation with someone and telling them, oh, addiction, that's not, you know, that's, that's a choice. That's, it's, not some, it's not something you can't stop. Well, I was smoking cigarettes at the time, and they were like, okay, stop smoking cigarettes. And that lasted about four days <laughs> before 
I just couldn't do it. And I was like, okay, I see your point here, you know. But even people who've never smoked a cigarette before, they wouldn't they wouldn't understand it. This is a problem that I see with society, and I don't want to get too far off topic. But for some reason, if something is not our world experience, then it's just not real. I see that too much. This COVID-19 situation, I see people saying it's not a real thing because they don't know anybody who's got it. Okay, that's your experience. Exactly. <laughs> that does not necessarily mean, just because that's your experience, does that mean not mean that that is the entire worldview? And I think the same applies to people who are skeptical about addiction. You can't know or understand it because you haven't done it. And that is why I softened my position on it considerably because I, I, I can't speak on it. I don't know. I'm not one of those people who's going to pretend to know something that I don't. And if I listen to someone like yourself or people that I know who have talked to me about it and they tell me their story and they bear their soul and they tell me about all the things that they went through. And then I compare to some of the things that I've gone through. It's really easy to see how that could happen. You know, I appreciate you addressing that because that was really the point of even doing this episode is I wanted to have somebody speak on it and talk to the people who may not understand. Go ahead. Another aspect to it is that, you know, addiction, it's a disease of the mind. Mm -hmm. You can't see it. Um, It's not like with diabetes, you know, type two diabetes, technically, technically type two diabetes starts with a choice. Indeed. That is not something that is genetic. You develop that by your choices of your eating habits and how you take care of your body. Exactly. Um, But diabetes does have outlier symptoms. You know, you can physically see what diabetes does to the body right addiction and mental health you can't see it mm-hmm. you can't see it yeah and i think that's what makes it hard for people to believe it absolutely i think what's important is people doing what you're doing right now speaking out about it i talk about my experience because i know that there's a stigma especially among men for some reason if you admit that you're depressed or admit that you have problems dealing with certain things, it makes you less of a man. And that's why I try to be as open and honest and transparent about my experiences as possible. Because us talking about this is what raises awareness. If people stop ignoring it, then we may get to a point where people are actually doing what it takes to heal themselves or at least be the best version of themselves as possible. Oh, I I just agree with that. Um, I think another thing that, you know, we as parents, parents in this world we were I know for my generation we were taught like boys don't cry toughen up we're mm-hmm. toughen up buttercup like yeah there's no crying in baseball all of those things my entire childhood especially with the boys and I think it's important as parents nowadays to let our children know hey it's okay to have these emotions and feelings yeah but let's talk about it let's let's be healthy about these feelings mm-hmm I agree 100%. That's why I'm extremely grateful that you've come on and you've talked about your experience. And I know that it's a work in progress every day. How would you quantify your self-esteem, your level of self-worth and your well-being right now? Now that you're, you know, you're back in therapy, you're, you're, you're trying to make constant progress. How would you, uh, how would you say you're, you're doing in that aspect now? Today with my current situation where I am mentally, I feel more confident than I have in a very long time. Um, I am able to be more aware of my feelings or emotions that I have in the moment mm-hmm. and address them with the tools that my therapist has given me. My anxiety has been manageable. Um, I, I do breathing te- techniques. I have 
anxiety apps on my phone. That's cool. Just a lot of tools that I've, I've been taught. And in therapy, you know, that's another thing with mental health in America right now is that therapy is very hard to get and it's very expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's another reason people don't want to reach out for help because they either A, don't have insurance or they can't afford it. Yeah. But there are resources online. There are thousands of resources. There are thousands of apps. So yeah. if anybody is struggling with any type of depression, anxiety, any other mental changes that they just don't know how to fix or they don't know where to start, start with Google. Start with all of those networks online because there are tons of people who are out there willing to help out for free. There are tons of resources. That's the beauty of technology. And I think we live in a time where people are more aware of this being an issue. So that's why it was really important for us to do this episode, I felt. And when I saw you on, on social media talking about what you were going through, speaking your truth a little bit, it, it was kind of a no-brainer for me to ask you, hey, come talk to me and Chris. Explain to us how this works and our audience in turn as well. So thank you so much for doing that. You know, you, our families are intertwined because your daughter, Autumn, on the same cheerleading team as, as my youngest, Hannah, and Chris's uh, two young girls, Fallon and Zoe. Mm-hmm. And so we consider you a friend of the family. I know you're not here chilling on every Sunday and everything, but, you know, we really appreciate the fact that we were close enough that you would come and tell us this story and participate. And I know you said you'd checked out our podcast a few times, so we, we really appreciate that as well. This is your moment to say whatever else you need to say on the subject to the world. Uh, you got anything else you want to add? I just want to say um, thank you for allowing me this opportunity to talk about my experience with addiction, mental health, and everything else in my own personal life. And I really hope that somebody somewhere out there gets something out of it in a positive way and they're not too scared or ashamed to say, okay, maybe I need to talk to somebody. Me too. Because we're not alone in this. We're all in this together. And where we're at nowadays with society, I want to say that we are becoming more open to accepting people who are going through things deeper than the outside. Yeah, I agree with that. And I'll tell you what, we're going to promote this episode and I'll tag you and everything. You know, if anybody wants to get a hold of Courtney and ask her about her experience and ask for advice or ask where they should go to get help. I mean, please do that anywhere you can find. Just don't be, don't be scared and don't be ashamed. You know, don't let the stigma that could be placed on it stop you from doing what it takes to be the best version of you. That's the most important thing. Chris, are you still there? I am still here. <laughs> okay. I don't want the shit in the background to affect the quality of the episode. You being a part of the show is a part of the quality of it, man. I would like to revisit this. Yeah, for sure. Uh, when we're able to be in the studio. I agree with that. I agree with that. 100%. I, I really would. I agree with Chris 100%. This is definitely a topic we'll want to revisit, and we'd love to talk to you about even further. And like we said, it's always a work in progress, so you can keep us up to date on on what's going on with Courtney and Autumn. Well, once again, we appreciate uh, you coming on and talking about this subject. Before we get out of here, uh, Chris and I had a very close friend of ours pass away on Thursday. Uh, Teresa Parks, uh, she was 62 years old, and she's leaving behind two children, four grandchildren, 
And where I struggled with this, Chris, is that I wanted to take this opportunity to send condolences to her family. Of course. But then I realized if I send condolences to her family, I'm talking about myself and you. We were Teresa's family. Yeah. Our five children knew her as Aunt Teresa. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it was pretty devastating, man, because I'm going to try not to get choked up talking about this. Teresa was here in February looking after our kids while we were on the cruise, taking them to school every day, going to work every day herself. And, you know, out, out of respect for her, for her family, I'm, I'm not going to get into details, but things declined really quickly. And it's just a tragedy, it, man. Like, it, de it definitely gives you a, a grasp on how thing, how quickly things can be taken away yeah and i just i mean it, it i don't know man we do want to dedicate this episode to her and her honor and her memory of course i like to think that she's listening to us now and she can hear us doing that for her so Teresa parks you know you will be missed we love you and once again condolences to everyone who cared about her and loved her we were a part of that group she will not be forgotten to everybody who's been supporting this podcast up to this point we can't thank you enough. The sense of community that I've felt over the past several weeks between the time we did our last episode on Sunday, we did the small business shout out on Monday that was released on Wednesday. The enormous amount of outreach people have given to us and they're thanking us for doing something that was not really a big deal, man. For us to give back to people who have been supporting us and yeah, say, hey, let's do something for these people who've been who've been supporting us so hard. It wasn't difficult to do, but just the amount of camaraderie I felt with this community over the past week was great. You know, Steve and Terry came over here and he helped Logan get rid of his possums and you know, he was talking <laughs> to <laughs> he was talking to Whitney about how he started listening to this podcast and he didn't even know we were local guys until like a few episodes into it. I just met him for the first time a couple of days ago and I felt like I knew him cuz you know, we'd been yeah, talking to course. each other, you know, through the podcast and, you know, through social media and whatnot. So I'm just really proud of what yeah. we've done, Chris. I'm proud of both of us. I'm proud of this episode. And I hope, as Courtney said, that people are going to listen to it and it's going to help somebody out there, whether it's helping them take action to, you know, overcome their own addiction, their, their own depression, or if it's something as simple as just letting them know, hey, it's okay to talk about it. I'm proud of what we've done. Yeah, yeah, um, we're getting close to the end of this season in the podcast. And as I look back, you know, it's kind of like when you cut your grass during the summertime and you just kind of sit back and look at your lawn. You feel real good. <laughs> Sip a little iced tea or a little cold yeah. beer. Like every time I look back at our past episodes, man, I just I feel good about it. And I'm proud of what we've done. Yeah, of course. So once again, Courtney, thank you so much for joining us. I hope we did your story proud. Like I said, we're going to keep in touch with you. Keep us up to date on the progress of Courtney French. I'm going to ask a really stupid question before we get out of here. Um, the last name French, what is the origin of that of that name? I have no idea. Um, <laughs> okay. It's kind of it's a funny joke. Uh, growing up, you know, people would say, oh, well, my last name is German or my last name is telling where it came right. from. And I would always chime in, well, my last name's French. <laughs> And they'll ask me, well, what is it? It's French. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, funny. Funny joke. I have no idea yeah. where it came from. But, but we don't know if French is actually yeah, French. Okay. Because French fries are not French. Yeah. 
but you know, okay. Nope. Okay. <laughs> freedom fries. Maybe I should change my last name to Freedom. Freedom. There you go. <laughs> Courtney, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Chris, thank I miss you, you, bud. I cannot wait until we're back in the studio. So right for this shit to be over. Yeah, I hear you. We need to post those pictures that you that uh, of all the soundproof you put up. You did an amazing job. Looks great, bud. Uh, I appreciate you doing that. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys, so we're going to go ahead and get out of here, but we will talk to you all next week. Until then, my name is Nick Stevenson. My name is Chris Clark. We'll see you all next time. You've been listening to the Smells Like Middle-Aged Spirit Podcast with Nick and Chris. For more show content, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.